This is the Power Producers Podcast, where we are refining and redefining the sales game. Rule number one is you have to believe in yourself. You're the only one who doesn't think you belong in this appointment. The prospect has already validated your existence by scheduling time with you. Get it through your head you belong here. Go in there, crush it, and close the deal. A place where sales professionals can come to learn from other sales professionals and thought leaders that have mastered their craft. The difference between a good salesperson and a best-in-class salesperson is only two minutes. By spending an extra two minutes on what you might think is a mundane task in the sales game, you separate yourselves from the pack, you grow your book of business, you close more deals, and you retain your accounts. As well as their peers who are still striving for perfection to achieve their why. I have a wife and four kids. Failure is not an option. Real sales professionals. Real stories. Real results. It's no different than being a professional baseball player. You can't be a one-trick pony. You have to be a five-tool player in order to succeed in this game. This is the Power Producers Podcast. Production redefined. Are you ready to feel the power? Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Power Producers Podcast, where we're refining and redefining the sales game. Today, we have a very special guest, Mr. Ryan Keating. What's up, brother? going on david what's up kyle thank you for having me on yeah not much man i'm just trying to trying to get everything ready to roll and get the heck out of dodge for um you know a long weekend we by the time everybody hears this they will have heard the they will have heard the podcast we did with jennifer and i talked a little bit about you know my son and some of the issues that we have dealing the challenges we have with him having special needs so we typically have to get out of town about once a quarter for a long weekend if nothing else just to completely decompress and we we go to the keys because it's relatively close it's like an hour away we can eat at the places we like to eat visit the uh establishments we like to visit the live music's off the charts and you know offshore fishing's fantastic so we have this little regimen that we go through and last time we were there was September. We were supposed to go in in March, and that got killed because of COVID. And so once they opened back up, we immediately booked this coming weekend. And I swear, like literally anything and everything that could keep me from going to the Keys is happening. So yesterday at like 12.01 a.m. Tuesday, we get a notification from my kid's school that they are immediately shutting down because one of the teachers had tested positive for COVID. And so not a big deal. Neither of my kids were exposed to it. Um, but it threw a wrinkle in the childcare plans because the person that was going to keep them was driving up. It wasn't going to be here until, you know, time to pick them up from their childcare, which now doesn't exist. So I worked through that. Then this morning, or actually last night, I'm laying in bed and my wife does the awesome thing that all females are innately able to do, and that is dig their fingernails into your flesh while you're dead asleep and scream, did you hear that? And so that's always a great way to wake up. So my first reaction when I hear, did you hear that, is to grab my gun um, because I think somebody's in the house. And then I heard it, and it was actually our air conditioning getting absolutely fried. So we have zero air conditioning right now. And thank God 
yeah, thank God I have got a bunch of clients that are HVAC contractors. Yeah. I hit them up first, second this morning on text. There's already portable AC units in the house, and they're coming to an ins- install a whole new system on Friday while we're in Key West. Now, mind you, I've known that this was coming for a while, and I was really hoping that I would win one of their oldest AC unit contests and get this for free. Unfortunately, it's going to be north of 13 grand to have it replaced. And awesome. We did find out that the unit is from 1996. Wow. It's a strong run. You know, uh, policy on your home with equipment breakdown, right? Yeah, I wish (laughs) you know what I you know, that's an interesting question, man. Would they even cover something that old? I don't I don't pay attention to that stuff. Um, I know on our office, we had an old unit that kind of fried with a chub policy that got replaced. And we work out of an old house. But on the homeowner side, I'm not not 100 percent sure on that. I know the thing they got out there and got some portables because it is hot as balls. Dude, it is nuts. It's supposed to be like, feels like 105 today. Yeah. You know, it, it was so bad when Irma came through a few, a couple of years ago, we lost power for close to a week. And that was the worst part, man. We were able to cook, you know, I had a generator power in the refrigerator and the freezers and stuff. But the fact we didn't have a take that for advantage, man, or, or for granted, it's, um, it, it is ridiculous, especially right now. I mowed the grass yesterday at 530, like we were talking about. Absurd. It was. St- it still felt like 105. The pool's not even cold at that point. Like you get in the pool <laughs> like and it's bath. like you're jumping into a warm bath. It's terrible. Yeah, we're, we're humid here up in, in Connecticut. And I, I went to school in Tampa, so I spent some time down where you guys. Oh are. yeah. And did then, you go to UT or what? I did. Oh, cool. Yeah, there's yeah. a lot of, um, uh, I, I guess, students from different states and different countries that go to UT. So that's that's cool. They did. They did a great job bringing in a diverse population. Yep. And then spent some time down in Dallas, too. So we had the 100-degree days and 100-degree nights. Super so, gross. Uh, Northern Texas really isn't that bad. You know, it's hot, but it's dry. It's drier. Yeah, exactly. So down in Houston and brutal. Listen, I have friends in Arizona that talk about it, but it's a dry heat. No, I'm sorry. It's not. It If it's 120 degrees out, I am going to sweat buckets regardless <laughs> of whether or not there's any humidity at all. So, Ryan, why don't you tell them where you're from, kind of how you got to where you're at now. I know your, your agency story is a little bit different in that you didn't start a scratch agency like some of the people that we have on, but I think that you know, you've got some dynamics that you face every day that people can benefit and learn from. But you have an interesting background, too, just from conversation. Yes, absolutely. So on the, on the insurance side, I, I was born and raised in the insurance industry. So I'm part of the third generation business that my grandfather had started here in the Hartford, Connecticut area. And my mom actually never really wanted my brother or sister I to get involved in the business. She saw the relationship my grandfather and dad had and kind of how that affected the family in ways growing up just in her mind and so as a kid we would go to the office a little bit here and there we'd do things like take a magnet on a rubber band and pick up staples off of the carpet or help with filing when computers came into play but other than that I never really got involved until my grandfather was in the hospital and it was just my dad and aunt so 
they needed someone to answer phones and be in the office if people came in. And you know, I was about 20 years old or so and kind of just, hey, Ryan, hang out, be in the office, help out. And I got interested in it a little bit and then got licensed and realized if I don't leave Connecticut or the agency, I'm never going to leave. And this is going to be the rest of my life. So having gone to school in Tampa and still a friend network in Tampa, I kind of looked at going back there. And then everyone always talks about California and San Diego. So I kind of was like, all right, well, they're about equal distance on the map. So how different can San Diego be than Tampa? So I kind of flipped a coin and landed on San Diego, which was already made up in my head. So I sold my car and went out there with two grand and, <laughs> and just kind of whatever's going to happen happens. Hey, I got a question for you, man. A lot of people call San, uh, San Diego, the Tampa, the West. I thought that there were a lot of similarities. I mean, it's, obviously it's its own unique place, but I was kind of amazed at some of the things that were almost identical to what they're like in Tampa. I felt like I was home when I was in San Diego back in January. I definitely think it, it has a lot of similarities. And I think just even living in different cities, I mean, that's a beach community, beach communities. So you have the downtown hub and Tampa has a very business focused downtown. And then it kind of spreads out from there. San Diego, the same thing, except San Diego draws a lot of conference traffic to downtown where we were for innovation. We were kind of not in the gas lamp, not right in the thick of it, but that's a big, but we made it there. We made it. To- <laughs> we did. It, it wasn't too far. Actually, yeah. I made it there with you, man. <laughs> yeah, and then uh, Justin, little double deuce, and that yeah, was a good trip. It's a good San Diego trip. Um, but the so so when I was in my young twenties, there was great in San Diego. I worked for the Padres. I did some sales jobs, and kind of started my own thing, doing marketing, cold calling businesses. I have a bit of a graphic design background as well so i would do flyers menus whatever and barter for gift cards or payments and things like that flyer cars so i I had a lot of different experiences there i actually sold e-cigarettes for a while and worked with some israelis and did sales training with different kiosks they had in malls they had they had like 50 60 different kiosks in the north well actually when i went up to the bay so i did san diego for two and a half years i went up to the bay through kind of the baseball side of things and also the kiosk sales. So I worked with the Giants in athletics and then the kiosk stuff. I uh, worked with the startup. Um, I was reading, I, read, I finished your book last night, I read actually for like 30, 40 minutes. Um, and it started getting me thinking on like listening to some of the podcasts where I've been over the years in different sales roles. And, and it's interesting to see. So pretty much San Diego, San Francisco, was going back to San Diego to do the Golf Academy of America, a 14-month program to get into the golf industry, work for Callaway or something like that. It was the thought, Titleist. Came back home for Christmas. My brother is moving to Tahoe. We stopped in Utah to visit a friend at a ski lodge. His girlfriend goes, we just fired someone in the kitchen. I can get you a job. I'm like, sure, whatever. Not <laughs> going to happen. So next thing you know, I learned how to ski and learned how to cook. And then that took me to Montana to work at a cherry orchard where I cooked for 20 people. Did you like Forrest Gump, man? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I just don't like to run, though. The, the kiosk had to be absolutely ridiculous. Like, did you actually work in the kiosks in the mall? Because I will literally do 
anything in my power to not make eye contact or talk to anybody. I will talk, I will talk to the caution signs on the floor just to avoid not talking it's to those a, people. I, it's a really interesting type of sales. You have impulse sales with that. You have, you got to build trust really fast, especially selling e-cigarettes, which. Come here, kid. You want this cigarette? <laughs> yeah. Or something like that. So they're out the Listen, did you see, did you see the episode <laughs> of the prophet where he made them do that? Mm. Like he, he had, he had three people. It was, it was not the prophet. It was the, the spinoff of the prophet where he was interviewing who was going to become his partner. And it was down to like the final three or four people. And the elimination was going to be based on how well they performed setting up a kiosk in the mall, doing kiosk sales and driving revenue. And it was insane to watch like how bad these people botched it, honestly. But then the feedback that he gave was really good. If uh, Knowing that you did that, you should search that out if you didn't see it. It was a really yeah, good. I, so actually, so then I was living in Dallas, and I remember when he had the applications go out for that, I think the apprentice or whatever. Yeah. Um, and I was intrigued. I think that was also when I started looking at coming back here to Connecticut. But on the kiosk side of things, I think it is – a real interesting sales and depending on what your product is, there's definitely, well, now mall traffic's not what it used to be too. And true. And I take a kiosk anywhere that you're going to have a high traffic area and you can get people to, I mean, you can technically sell insurance from a kiosk as long as you bring people over and you have an opportunity to talk to them. Um, it's a point of sale. Um, the thing that's crazy is the rent that they have to pay for those things. If I want to say we were, like twenty five hundred dollars a month, and then it went up to like twelve, fifteen grand in November and December. Wow. Um, yeah, I mean it's it's an insane amount, and you know that that speaks volumes to how much inventory they have to turn just to cut cut even on the rent. Yeah, that's crazy. Yeah, and then you're paying people hourly and profit. So what's crazy? Like what I, I actually brought this up the other day. Someone was interviewing me on something. Like, a, what's a weird thing that no one knows about you? I know how to curl hair. So they also all know flat iron kiosks. So I had to learn how to use a flat iron. Yeah. yeah like those things cost five bucks. They sell them for $200. So the profit margin on that. And then you can. Fun fact, there. Dave curls his hair every morning. Every morning, right before I braid my beard. Yeah. <laughs> I know you got your quarantine beard looking good there, Dave. It's trying. Um, yeah. So kiosks were kind of a couple years of my life and when I worked for the sports teams we did in-seat concessions so we would run around the stadium and sell Cracker Jacks, snow cones, cotton candy, things like that. California does not allow alcohol sales in the stands. It's whack. I'm never going to California. Fenway. That was kind of my goal thought when I moved out there. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll start selling beer at the Padres games. I'm like, no, you can sell cotton candy. I'm like, eh, a little different. But a little different, t- little different target market. I yeah, hope. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Parents would come down. You didn't give my kid change. I'm like, the kid ran away. You know, <laughs> I got a line of five kids wanting snow cones, and I'm not going to chase your kid to give him fifty cents. <laughs> I feel like I feel like I would do that job for like two days. Yeah, it would, it would immediately get fired. You know, because I just wouldn't be. Able I would to lose it on somebody. Yeah, no very way. quickly. It's really transactional. It wasn't too bad. It's like. Boom, boom, boom. And 
Did you ever have like I would love it if this is the case? Did you ever have like the textbook kid from the movie that came up and ordered the snow cone and then immediately kicked you in the shins when you <laughs> gave it to him? Uh, fortunately, no. no. God, that would be awesome. The worst I had was uh, carrying one of those boards of cotton candy and a foul ball, basically coming at me and then trying to maneuver not. Like the Matrix. Getting hit by the ball, and it caught the back end of it, and the cotton candy went flying. Um, and then you resp- that, Are you responsible for all that? Somewhat. I had a great relationship with uh, the gentleman I worked with. I ended up pretty much helping him operate it. So he had opened up a couple of Floyd's barbershops. He was a great mentor of mine, actually. Well, he, he knew you could curl hair, so I mean. <laughs> yeah, this is this <laughs> freak hair curling. Uh, he, recognized, he recognized your talent. Um, and he just needed someone that he could trust to kind of help run. There's a lot of money that flowed through it too. So, yeah, it's crazy. I actually looked at buying a chain of barbershops with a buddy of mine as an investment. Um, uh, happy Brian. Nothing, nothing surprises me anymore of the shit. that you said. <laughs> No, but I mean, there was, we were looking at a way to, uh, just sort of have a little side hustle that you didn't have to be overly involved in. And he brought this, like he and I have been trying to do something together for years. And he brought this like chain of barbershops. It was all ethnic barbershops. Number one, we're the two whitest guys ever. So what do I know about especially him? And, yeah. The ins and outs of cutting, you know, it was typically like Cuban, Hispanic, you know, hair and things. And, and I told him, I said, my biggest concern, man, is the cash. How are we going to manage this? How are we going to know that we're actually getting our cut of everything we're supposed to get? And it was like five locations. And I, I just told him, I said, I'm not willing to take the risk on it. I think there's, an opportunity for a reward. This is high pilferage business. Yeah, I know it's, I mean, it's also, it's the same thing. People need their haircut. Obviously it's not going to stop per se. We're seeing barbershops have been shut down, but women pay thousands of dollars for haircuts mm-hmm. and coloring and all that stuff too. So, but, um, so then like life took me Montana, the woman I owned a cherry orchard I worked for Montana, had a benefits company in Dallas. So I was still in my mind going back to San Diego and she's got to know each other in the background of growing up in a family business. She was in her early sixties and she goes, well, I don't really have any retirement plan, but I know I don't want to keep doing this. Um, So she's like, why don't you come check out my operation and see what you think about the benefits side. And she had 12 clients did over 40, 50 million in premium. And much different than the personal lines agency I grew up in. And, and that really piqued my interest of where I wanted to be in insurance. And, and definitely, again, that experience was, well, I, I couldn't say no. Um, so kind of went down there and big city, Dallas, you know, people, Yankee, Yankee in Texas. But uh, learned a lot in that year and targeting 100 plus live groups it it was interesting um her and i worked together for about a year or so but she realized there's no point to give you know it's all relationships she had 30 year 40 year relationships with her clients that she really didn't have to do too much she had a renewal set she got to go hunting she got to do the cherry orchard in the summer and travel and basically had it three other friends that worked for her for 30 years together that bringing in 
business was different. They hadn't sold in a while, similarly to my situation coming back here. Um, we didn't have a commercial side of the business. So I've been creating that as well as trying to create a sales culture in ways. Um, it, it's been a challenge and both of them are challenging, but Dallas, I really connected reading your book a lot with kind of sales 101 that <clears throat> I just kind of instinctively went through in ways, which I was weird, but like the calling, one of the things that popped in my head, I completely forgot about, I used to, I still, I don't do it enough. And I used to love cold calling. I would have my prospect list that I would build out and have a couple hundred that I would call on. And it was all based on the 401k group size. So you had the employee size and you had amount of money in their 401k. So I was able to say, all right, like these are the ones I want to go after, do some research, find out who I was calling. And I remember, I think my first couple days or weeks of calling, couldn't get anyone, couldn't get anyone. And I was calling and I was like, I'm not going to stop until I get an appointment. I think I got an appointment. It was like 5.30, almost 6 o'clock. And I was so excited. I got it. I remember like telling her this. And then she's like, keep calling. And I was like, what do you mean? Next phone call, another appointment. Um, both of those were after hours. And I think it was even like a Friday or something. But that, <clears throat> that triggered in my head reading your book last night. You know, I've forgotten about that, like that extra mile, extra two minutes. You know, it was a Friday or Thursday. Should have, could have gone out to happy hour, but want to keep calling. And then you get the momentum to you get one, you get another. And it probably was like 100, 200 calls I made that week. Just trying to get in front of some appointments. And then, uh, yeah, so we did that. And then in Dallas, so went from there did a contract job bringing a company from Atlanta to Dallas that did some wellness testing, um, health company, um, that the founder of that actually is in jail right now. That's a whole nother thing. Um, he was doing a legal, he was multi multi billing. He had like four or five different LLCs. He'd bill for all these different testing that he would go on site. And, uh, I got paid a little bit while I worked for him still, but, Seeing all the back end, I'm glad I got out of that. Then I started a business doing tailgates for Cowboys games. Um, a lot of things learned there. A lot of contractual stuff that I realized. Read fine print. Uh, also went a little too big, too fast. Tony Romo got hurt early in the season. They went 4-12 and and a little bit of a fair weather city. Uh, so then I got back into benefits with a gentleman who promised me a lot and then didn't really work out his plan, not the culture I wanted to be long-term. So I was there for six, eight months, and then I started when I realized I was going to leave there, looked at other jobs and put talked with my dad about what does he want to do with the agency, where does he see it going, and really heavily looked at that. And here I am back in Connecticut. So that seems like an extremely long amount of time. You're not that old, dude. So how long have you been with your dad now? So going on four years now. Wow. So I drove back from Texas. Are you even 40 yet? 32. Holy crap, dude. <laughs> You've like lived the life of a 60-year-old in the first 28 years of your life. 
It, That's it, crazy. It is, and I, and I think some. But it's good. Don't get me wrong, man. I'm mean, I'm not busting your balls. I think it's I think it's good because every single step along that journey, you learn something else. And I mean, Kyle made the wise crack that he believe, he doesn't doubt anything that comes out of my mouth anymore, but that's not an accident. You know, I have literally done so much stuff that I can find common ground with people quickly, like right out of the box in about 30 seconds to a minute, no matter what it is, I have some working knowledge of just a bunch of useless crap. Otherwise that's in my head, just because I've been at the, in so many different places doing so many different things. Well, I, I think that's why you and I connect pretty well. From when we've met, I mean, when I was reading, you said you're making like the potholders, yeah, or whatever. Selling potholders door to door as a kid. Yeah, I mean, my first third grade was my first kind of work. I, I had to get a paper on third grade because I wanted a bicycle. It was like, well, if you want a bike, you're gonna buy it. And then that kind of, I realized, wow, there are there are no free bikes in our yeah, house. Yeah, it's like, and I was like, wow, making money is awesome. So that spawned, I did a paper out as a substitute third, fourth, fifth grade in the summer. Then I had my own paper out that my dad and mom helped me with. I'm very grateful for all of that. Uh, my dad threw out his back one time. He still brings it up, blaming me for his back problems, but that's another story. Too. Um, and then I got into mowing lawns um, because I wasn't allowed to do the paper anymore because I was falling asleep in class and I blamed it on a paper out, but it really was school. Um, so that, did you have like the over the shoulder bag where you walked down the street, chucking the papers or were you in the car given the, over the, over the roof shot it, on the other was, side? Uh, of the street? It was a radio, the red wagon. So we'd pull them on a red wagon on the Sunday papers, but Thursday were heavy. And then yeah, the bags. And once I got old enough, I could double strap. Um, I wish I still, my mom actually might still have one of them in the attic somewhere, but they don't make them anymore. I don't think they're those, those things are durable and awesome. Um, yeah. You can probably carry a body in it. <laughs> I can't get the image out of my head of you walking around through your neighborhood as a kid with a bunch of pot holders on your hands, also carrying a satchel full of these same pot holders trying to sell them. Oh dude, I crushed it. Absolutely <laughs> crushed it. Um, but then the lawn mowing I mean, lawn mowing was sales. One oh one. made flyers would knock on doors. Hey, you know, local kid just looking to do make some money yard work raking things like that and i got up to a pretty successful level where i pretty much probably could have started a landscaping company i would hire friends out my brother would work with me and it's funny looking back they'll give you a hundred two hundred thousand dollars to go to school but if you try to get a twenty thousand dollar loan to start a business there's no way that's going to happen at 18 years old um, and I actually never finished school. I, similar to you, Dave, reading or listening to one of your podcasts, I, I failed out freshman year. It wasn't for me at the time. Um, I went from mowing. I was on- enjoying life experiences that are paying me dividends today because I took time to enjoy the social aspects. Yes. I, I went from mowing lawns, playing sport, working at the golf course, always doing stuff and always being active to my jobs to be a student when I went to school and it was hard for me to go from having so much to just being okay, just school uh, as well as getting exposed to Tampa and many different people from what, what brought you down to Tampa? Like what, what caused that? They had a, 
they promoted something within our school and then they did a local kind of Marriott. Hey, here's talking about the school and they gave my dad enough confidence. That, okay, let's go look at it. And then cost wise, it, I think straight up tuition is lower than most of the Northeastern school states. And then they gave me an academic scholarship as well. So it made it only like $16,000. Yeah. I know they hook up the out-of-state people. Like it's expensive as hell for in-state kids to go to UT for sure. I, I think it's the same price because it's private school. The Maybe twenty six thousand was what it was then. It's probably gone up because they've done a lot of work, and uh, I think we were at like seventy five hundred students. I know it's over ten thousand now. Um, so and then they put us up in the Hyatt downtown because they overbook the student population for freshmen or more people accept to go than they intend. So that was mm-hmm. really interesting too. College experience to start being at a hotel and not on campus that I think played a little bit into some of the factors as well. Interesting. Dude, be glad you're not there now because you never would. I mean, you, you'd have probably never gone to class ever the way they've developed that whole river walk area at this point. It's crazy. If you're coming to innovation in January, it's going to blow your mind how much that area has changed if you haven't seen it. Yeah, the Riverwalk, that's down where um, – It's right by that Hyatt you were at. Yeah. there's a. I, went, I visited my buddy still down there last winter, so we went to a spot down there. There's two restaurant bars, I think, right in that area. Um, forget the name of it, but yeah, I look forward to innovation and going down there for that so anyways where we are insurance wise that's a, the point of the podcast right or, dude it's, it's all it's all of the above man you never know you might have a guy that is trying to figure out how to insure a cherry orchard and now he knows who to call to understand the inner workings of it right, nationwide nationwide has a great agriculture program uh their farm program doesn't even skip a beat I've doesn't even, immediately that, goes that, into it. that's an area that i've been starting to to learn more on here um, like, so Bob Klinger's podcast is one that I really enjoyed of yours and, and hearing Bob talk more. And he's someone I've got to meet a bit too through all the time. The niches are very, they make a lot of sense in ways, but I can see where it's very hard to, to niche. And so I've had a lot of struggle coming back to, and similarly when I was in Dallas, also, and I think a lot of sales jobs and companies give people an opportunity, but they don't give them the foundation and the, the process is a big thing that you talk on. I've been in situations where there is no process. So it's kind of like, okay, you have ambition, you have desire, good luck. I think that's one of the biggest issues with our industry as a whole. Very few very few places have that process. And I mean, even with the people I talk to that, that are looking at coming into Killing Commercial, the one thing they tell me is everybody everybody tells you what you're supposed to do, but the difference is you show us how to do it and you have the accountability measures in place to make sure that it gets done and that it's easily replicable. But I mean, that's one of the reasons why I saw that there was there was a void there. I'm going to tell you right now, man, if you're going to start a niche, you should definitely have insuremykiosk.com. Like there is like that to me is a no brainer. You understand that industry. You could put some landing pages around that, some display advertising that has to be transactional business. Those people do not want a relationship. I'm sure 
There's your freebie for coming on the show, man. That's a passive income stream you should easily be able to develop. Thank yeah. So it's funny you said transactional. Um, and this, this that's one thing my dad and I have differed on how we see some of the things do change. <laughs> so he came from the kitchen table doing insurance, you know, homeowners auto, personal lines of relationship and long term and and now seeing where things are changing of using personal lines as an example. It's more on demand. People want it now. The relationship still matters in ways, but it's more have they heard of you or, or what can you do for them now? And then once they're a client, it's really developing that, that customer journey and experience, which coming back, there's not there's none of that. And still trying to implement that. And one of the, the challenging areas too, so you have so many things going on and seeing how to create and build something that's already got a foundation and try to take that to the next level, but then also trying to add and build something new in the commercial side. And if my, in my dad's mind, it's your jobs to be a producer and sell. In my mind, it's how do I build and grow while doing that, while doing this and intertwining many different things at once. Um, and that's where I definitely have struggled. I'll be honest. It's not easy. I've was fortunate too in the beginning. Um, I got my CIC pretty quickly um, in under two years because that was a way for me to learn. I didn't have anyone teaching me coverages this or that. I remember my first CIC class, I almost raised my hand and asked what ISO meant. <laughs> but one of the carrier reps luckily was sitting like behind me and I waited to the break and I asked him, I was like, why does he keep saying ISO? And the guy was just like insurance services. I'm like, well, he's like, look at the bottom of the page. I'm like, Oh, <laughs> but that's something that you're never really going to know unless someone tells you. But Dude, I, I'm, I was 100% in the same boat. Um, yeah. And I realized that I knew if I knew he was saying it so much that if I raised my hand and asked, it wouldn't be good. Um, so, so it was better to ask someone we knew. Um, but those CIC classes definitely helped me learn a lot. There were some great teachers that are producers, agency owners that really would give you experiences. Then you had some that were academic, you know, you don't take in as much from them. And then I also was able to do um, travelers, had a, had a program here locally in Hartford that I went through. I did the Chubb Producer School, which which Chubb, uh, I think, is the best I've done so far. Uh, Hartford had just sent something out yesterday. Kyle, I don't even know if you saw this. You probably want to take a look at it, though, for the CLCS designation. That I think it's complimentary. I didn't, I didn't click on it, but I did see that, that email. That's their two-day? I no, it's this is several. This is over the course of a few weeks, but I don't know how long the sessions are. But I'll forward you the oh, email no, that, I got because I think they're comping it for the Iroquois members. Yeah, that's interesting. The, that's the two week one. So I did that one in the beginning as well. So those first two years are really a lot of educational for me. What was better? What was better about the Chubb one? Um. They bring in top shelf talent, man, to yeah. teach that. I mean, Chubb, I, I've yeah. never heard anybody give that a bad review. Everybody talks about how awesome the Chubb Producer School is. Yeah, I, I think that one really you, – you, you dove into coverages a lot in that one. 
Mm-hmm. Hartford one tries to be sales focused, um, mm-hmm. which some of it was, you know, you got to do a mock sales presentation and pitch and working with people in the class. And sometimes people aren't always, it's interesting. It's not, mm-hmm. but you take out value from both too. But I, I can see where it's definitely hard for people getting the scratch agency side new into the business. You're out of the office for two weeks or a week to do these three days for CIC. Right. You, you can't do that sometimes. It's, it's a very hard choice to to make. Um, and that's where I know I've definitely have been fortunate. But I would also want to build and hire and be able to provide people that opportunity too because – there's stuff I've learned, but then they're going to learn things their own way as well and take in different things too. Um, and we're still not set up yet to be. A big what, deal. what, um, what was one of the things that you learned from, from the benefit stuff, um, you know, dealing with the bigger groups, um, that you're able to apply to, you know, what, what you're doing now? Uh, well, so one thing that I really kind of the takeaway, um, browsing this, <laughs> Like mm-hmm. I was flying on American Airlines um, <laughs> because I had no idea. Mm-hmm. Um, I was like, I just want to get my foot in the door. But with that, one thing that I was, took with me too, that was at this time when the ACA, Obamacare, was really kind of taking place. So a lot of people were taking meetings just because they were uncertain what was happening too. So they wanted to hear – Someone from somebody who might know, yeah, right. I was going against, um, like Lockton has a huge presence out there, Holmes Murphy in Dallas. Um, then you get into the Aon and and those other top, so Mm. those are the ones I was always going up against. And that kind of there was a book that someone told me about called Getting Naked, um, by Peter Lincecone, I believe. If you've listened to any of the podcasts, that's what David does when he walks into a business. Yeah, I do. I take my shirt off. Yeah. <laughs> like Burt Kreischer or whatever his name is, the stand-up comedian. The Machine. He does, he does the Machine. Uh, that, that book talked on, it was based on, a, he writes fables and turns them into business novels, but about a consulting firm that was like a small shop, jeans wearing versus the the David Carruthers suit and tie and how to go and, and take business from them. And, and not have that stigma of, oh, because they're so big and these, you know, name brand shops, how you get in there. And then that really opened my eyes a bit too. But also it does come down to relationships because you don't, those big shops need thousands of clients. What I also learned from working with this woman, she had 12 clients. Those clients were not going to leave her to save a thousand dollars or, you know, mm-hmm. you're also dealing with thousands of dollars. You know, some of these, one of these companies was paying $15 million a year in health insurance. Wow. You're not going to, you're not really going to be saving them a million dollars a year on insurance because it is what it is. Same with property casualty. Those coverage rates are pretty much similar across the board. So, so you're hiring an agent. And then I was listening to one of the podcasts to, I forget which one, but Dave, you guys were talking on the well, premium size came into play and I forget which who it was on it, but they were new into it. 
and you said just go for the larger accounts because you you don't know anything different. So you're going to learn. Oh, it's Ricky. It was Ricky Hader. Um, so you're going to learn that, and then that, that resonated with me too. Because so I got stuck coming back in my dad's mind, or in kind of our agency model being smaller and new. It's you do everything you learn by doing. And so I've been stuck with a lot of thousand dollar bops and all this excess stuff too. And then getting stuck with renewals coming in and it's been harder to prospect and really go after some of the larger stuff when you're stuck doing all of this low revenue generating elements. And then that's really where it's like, do you just cut it across the board in ways and, I I mean, listen, man, that's the struggle right there. I mean, you just defined exactly why I really don't want to go have my producers out looking for small business. It doesn't pay the bills. It's heavily service intensive. So, I mean, the way you do that is through automation and touching those policies as little as you can. On the other side of that, your dad's pushback is going to be, this is the way we've always done it. And we've had the kitchen table relationship for all these years and all those things. So, you know, for us, we, we, anything that comes in, that's going to be below the revenue threshold we want gets turned into small business unit where it's one person selling and servicing and they'd handle the whole thing, soup to nuts, renewals, all of that. You know, you, that's, that's what I think most agencies struggle with. I got into an argument this weekend. I actually have a blog post that I've already done in the video recorded for it. That's publishing Friday that the title of it is, do you have a minimum revenue threshold? And I mean, I think that it's, I'm not saying that there's one way right and one way wrong. I'm never going to be that guy that thinks everybody has to do it the way I do it. But what I do works for me and it works for other people who, who do things similarly, but the, the gist of the back and forth was all about minimum revenue. And I have all of these people in there chiming in about how stupid, I mean, they didn't call me stupid directly, but they're basically trying to make it seem like I'm an idiot because I only prospect accounts that are, you know, the size that I want. Like I don't want anything less than $5,000 in revenue because truthfully it's not worth my time. And the argument always is, you know, I, I, this is this is where scratch agencies miss the mark so bad, in my opinion. This answer right here. I'll write a $50 renter's policy. It doesn't matter. I'm a scratch agency. I'll take whatever I can get right now. Here's what you have to realize. You have to understand the difference between income, like top line revenue, and profit. Because if you're writing a bunch of $50 policies that you're having to go back and forth and spend a bunch of time touching and servicing, you're losing money on those accounts. I don't care if you write a hundred of them. If you lose money on every single one of them, you're not fixing your issue. You're making it worse. And that's at the end of the day, profits, what pays the bills, not income coming in. So if you don't have the ability to write profitable business, that's the first thing you need to identify. What level can I write business profitably? There's agencies out there that can write profitable business at 50 bucks in revenue. I mean, okay, that's fine. We have a whole subset of our business that sells wedding event cancellation policies that is $50 per policy is the revenue that our agency makes. And the reason why we do that is twofold. Number one, it's quote bind issue. We never touch it. So we can have people 
go to floridaweddinginsurance.com or keysweddinginsurance.com or napleswedinginsurance.com, all the different domains that I own to point to that site, and they can buy those policies and I never have to touch them. We don't even have to put them into our agency management system because of the way we're set up with the group that administers that program for us. But that's not where it ends, right? I mean, if you're going to write that kind of business, you need to have an end game. And for me, how I set that, the reason why I set that up the way I did was to funnel those leads into our CRM. So when we have somebody hit and buy the wedding insurance from us, they get to a thank you page. It's a video of me thanking them and congratulating them for their big day. And then it says, says, you know, right out, right. Hey, look, you know, there's several things you're going to need to be considering as you get closer to your big day. We're going to keep you um, reminded about those without being obnoxious, but we want you to realize you're going to have to look at your homeowners or renters. You're going to have to look at your auto. You're going to have to look at life and possibly disability, probably going to have to figure out how you're covering your ring and all of those things. And so it goes into an automation sequence that based on when the date of the wedding is put in, will hit them with each of those messages. And it culminates a couple of days before the wedding with me just sending out another video that says, hey, congratulations on your big day. We're happy for you. We hope you enjoy your honeymoon. Please let us know if there's anything else we can do for you. We really value you as a client. This is what I know. All of those fools that are making fun of me for having $50 wedding policies don't realize that as long as I spend less in display and search advertising than what I make in service fee for that policy, everybody else is going out and paying money to learn how to drive personal lines leads or they're paying for personal lines leads. We're getting paid for personal lines leads. So, and by the way, not too bad of a deal because pre-COVID, we were popping six to eight policies a day that we never had to touch there were $50 in revenue. And if you're running the math in your head, that's $146,000 a year in revenue that I have in my agency that I don't have to lift a finger for. And that doesn't even count what we're doing for the per- what we do to round out the personal lines or any other part of that. So I think that you have to define what it is you're going to go after, what, you, what you're excited about, what, you, what you're passionate about that you really want to get ingrained in from a business standpoint. But I do think that every agency that's out there right now needs to have a healthy mix of the way we've always done it and meeting people where they want to be met. And I mean, to me, the middle market is never going to be completely transactional. The agent is always going to be relevant because you have to give those people are going to need the kind of advice that we give them. You're not going to get that from artificial intelligence. Um, So, I mean, that's just. I went off on a little tirade there for a second, but I mean, that that's kind of where my head is with all this stuff right now is if you can automate it and it's the smaller stuff, great. Train those people that are coming in that this is how it's done. And then they don't have that kitchen table expectation, right? The problem is, and I, I don't necessarily say that it's a problem, but the challenge that you have is you've got a book of business that's always been you know, dealt with with that high level of customer service. And it's very difficult to determine how you're going to transition or cut the cord on that. No, absolutely. And, and we acquired an agency recently, too. That was all personal lines. And and that process has not gone as smoothly, too. There's the former agent was supposed to kind of do an outreach and let them know about the change. And then that didn't fully happen. And 
they were more high touch people coming in with cash payments and things like that. And we've been not much walk-in traffic like that for a while. Uh, my dad did do a great job of getting people set up on payroll deductions or EFT and things like that versus really lowering touches. <clears throat> but people kind of are confused. It's a whole confusing thing. Okay. Why did we change what happened to the old owner? And, and that, you know, just sending out a letter or a call, it's not that hard, but when you get stuck into all, all these things that you think you should do the little stuff, well, next thing you know, you got someone like for me, someone's like, all right, I have these five rental properties. I need a quote tomorrow. Everyone needs a quote tomorrow, but you try to move stuff around and then, cause you want to write business that supersedes putting time into marketing or developing your prospect list and things like that, uh, which is where I feel there's definitely some similarities coming into generational businesses that there are two scratch agencies, um, especially if you're in that setup of, okay, good luck, do it yourself because I had to do it that way. Or, you know, you build, and, and this happens a lot of insurance, is your book of business, uh, the way people look at it. Well, you build your book. And that's your book. And this is my book or depending on the agency size, how that gets all split up. Um, I think that's a whole conversation that can be something in itself, too, um, because it, it, it's interesting. Um, and I know one thing that for me really has worked well pre all of this is event based marketing. I'm a big fan of bringing people together. Dude, you're killing it like at all those chamber events and everything. I mean, I see you on social media. You're at a freaking mixer or a happy hour or something all the time. Charity charity events, all of that. I mean, you're, you just absolutely kill it. Well, well because I can right now. Um, single, 30, and I can spend my time after work going and networking, shaking hands. And I did the same thing in Dallas. In my three years in Dallas, I – still have a great network of people there that that was really hard for me to leave having done the work to build the network I built, um, knowing that I'd have to be doing it again, coming back to Connecticut, even though I grew up here, it's still a whole new build. A lot of people didn't even realize that our agency has been around for 50 years because my dad wasn't, he, he's not a networking guy. My grandfather was old school cocktail napkin, martini lunches you know you sign the napkin but also property insurance back in the day you could rate it you know how many square foot this and that use like all right the price is going to be about 50 grand does this work for you sure sign here and then you go to the insurance carrier and you make it happen um so he had his contacts there and then my dad got stuck kind of personal lines and doing a lot of service work that he never got the really big into marketing and networking and sales. <clears throat> so it's been an interesting mix coming from something that's maintained like an agency does to try to scale and grow and take in all of the technology and automation. And there's a lot of bells and whistles and noise out there too, that it's hard to say, okay, let's try this, try that. But when you're trying to do it all yourself, 
Um, it's that shiny object syndrome we were talking about yesterday. Like, I forget. There's like the, um, someone refers to your technology stack. I know someone in our industry and it takes time and it's hard to build that out properly. If you don't know what you're doing exactly, you don't have real guidance. Um, I think for people trying to build it out, I think there was a stat, David, you said it on something too. Like you made killing commercial priced so people would feel pain that they would versus something that people buy and don't use. Like I'll be honest, we are paying for better agency right now, but have not implemented it yet because part of it, when I look at it, it kind of seems Greek to me because it's a raw product. And then the other side is how would it be built out properly? We don't have personal line salespeople that would be building out pipelines. We have an internal sales team that probably wouldn't use it because they work through applied Epic with how we're, so so we have so many different things, how we're set up from what's been a comfort level for the agency and then coming in and trying to hear and see what other people are doing and how that would mix in. And then it's like, well, why don't you just go sell commercial stuff? And I've had some great success with that on some of the larger stuff I've written that it's, it's a hard mix. Um, yeah, it's interesting, man. I mean, yeah, to your point, the way killing's priced is I, I tell people all the time, it has to be painful, but not punitive, you know, and, but, but you do, you have to have people in, in, I was talking to Nick Ayers about this because he's had his course for a long time now. And there's a lot to be learned from people who have, who have walked before you doing a similar thing, but with killing commercial, um, it, it really is a good way to weed out people who aren't serious. You know, if people, people are, cause I've got, I've got a lot of tire kickers, right. And I'm, I'm pretty generous with my time. I also put out a ton of free content that if people pay attention, they can put the pieces together themselves and they don't need me to do that for them. They're not going to get the same level of, of experience as they would if they were in the program. But at the same time, I just, I think that what I found is there are so many people that are looking for the magic wand. They want that silver bullet. They want somebody to tell them, Oh, you you can pay this much money and you're guaranteed to go out and just start knocking it out of the park the day that you sign up. And it's just not going to happen. It, it, it's impossible. In this business, you will always have to work. What I can do for people is show them how to flatten that learning curve a little bit, how to use some automation to help them. But Kyle will be the first one to attest to this. You still have to grind, man. We're still, not, I mean, I'm not doing it as much now because my network is is solid, but you still got a cold call. You know, it's it's not a matter of if you have to cold call, it's a matter of who am I going to cold call and how am I going to plan around that and set it up and make sure I'm only calling on people that we want to represent. And that's where that's where again, it's another major separation. You know, just like we were talking about on minimum account, you know, minimum account values, you got agencies out there that'll whore themselves out to anybody that'll listen in hopes that they can quote the business to win it on price. And we're just not going to do that ever. It's just not going to happen. We want to know where we want the deck stacked in our favor when we set up our cold call list. That's it. And that's who we call. Yeah. So Kyle's question before, what did I learn in, in Dallas for the 
large benefit. The list I made was pretty much anyone that fit that revenue and employee count. And that's something I definitely learned that you do need to fine tune and, and drill down. Who do you, well, that's in finding too, like getting to know people, who you're going to do business with or who's going to relate to you. That's going to enjoy doing business with you. Some people are very um, transactional or they want just the big four, you know, you mm-hmm. large companies and the accounting firms. People are afraid they're going to get fired if they don't hire. It's job protection in some ways too. who you hire when you're at that level of a company. If you hire a Deloitte or someone like that, well, you're not at risk of losing your CFO position due to an accounting error or something like that. But if you bring on a smaller firm, they could look at you and say, oh, well, you hired this no-name company and our accounting was off. That error is on you. Um, But the other side, I was thinking too, like a lot of stuff we've come in on the referral or this, people call us because they find us online and the right anything mentality is definitely hindered more than benefited me here. You know, especially in seeing looking at renewals and some of the excess stuff, it's like you're doing the same amount of work and there's technology I know now to help that, but it's figuring out what can be implemented and what's going to be used too. Cause we're tied to a back end service company that is amazing, but they're, they're, they're set up transactionally. They were set up for how my dad was doing business before, not growing, not having to hire internal staff. And it worked out great. But now it's I'm trying to push and push and push to build. And we're, we're working hard to find those synergies. And what wheels are going to, you know, like what's it going to take to build? But it's an interesting paradigm there right now. Um, yeah, I'm with you, man. I think that um, I think I think that the, another common myth with regard to commercial specifically is that when you write the larger middle market accounts, they just require so much more time and service, and that's not true. That couldn't be further from the truth. No, the time the time the time that you spend with those people is building your relationship with them and making sure that you're relevant at all times. You know, if you go into a manufacturing facility and you write that account on the insurance side of things, you're probably not going to have to do much. You're not, they're not buying vehicles. You typically, they don't have fleets of vehicles. Uh, Typically, they don't need certificates of insurance. They probably, in our case, they would have a workers' comp problem. And so that doesn't translate to me losing profit because I have a lot of people that are doing service work on the back end. That translates into either I hire a consultant to go in and address their issues or we go in and address their issues internally and help them with some of their training and things like that. I enjoy doing that. I mean, that to me is what I should get paid to do. The insurance piece of it is just a transaction. You know, it's it's a commoditized transaction. The real value is delivered by us helping them improve their culture, helping them improve their total cost of risk. And I mean, it could be any number of things. The other myth that I think people have is when you look at the things that I talk about in my book and also what we teach in Killing Commercial, you don't have to write accounts that are twenty-five dollars to $50,000 in revenue. Those principles apply all the way down as far as you want them to go. Now, granted, if you're focusing on accounts that are $5,000 in revenue, 
the value prop doesn't play nearly as well as what it does when you're at 25 or 50, but it still plays. The difference really to me is when you start hitting that inflection point of about $10,000 in revenue, now you can have real conversations with virtually every business owner or CFO or whoever it is that you're talking to. And there's enough meat on the bone that you can use the analytics that we use to make a business case for why they need to change. It's not a premium discussion anymore. Yeah. I mean, I'd say, so we have a couple of clients that are paying a good six figures for their insurance cost every year. And it's a much different conversation than someone who's paying five to $20,000 for their insurance costs. And you want it. And it is the same 80, 20 rule. Those people paying 20 grand or less on their insurance premiums want 80% of your time as well as the applications, everything is going to take just as much time to do. Um, and then that's what's been part of the learning process here too, is how do you best service those clients? Because they're great to keep on the books. And- yeah, you don't want to lose them. I mean, if they're if they're churning money for you, you know, I mean, that was, but again, part of my argument when I was going back and forth with the people in, in the group this weekend about minimum premiums, one of the people said, well, you know, you should write everything because you don't know what it could turn into. Well, my, my response to that is, why would I want to write something with the hopes it'll turn into $25,000 when I can just go write 25000 Like there's no hard, fast rule in the insurance industry that says, oops, the account hit 25. It's got to stop growing now. No, those accounts grow too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, I've I've written plenty of $25,000 accounts that turn into $75,000 accounts. Right. I was going to say, and those ones are going to grow faster than something from 5,000 to 25 in most most cases. In most cases, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I I got one that just um, two, three of the most recent accounts I wrote in the last year, well, two years, all opened up second locations. Another guy invested in another business. That was a $30,000, $40,000 account just because he had a great experience with me. And yeah, it goes back to that relationship that you were talking about, you know, and that's kind of, you know, the overnight success, the hard work pays off. You know, it's taken three years for me to start seeing transaction, not transactional, but relatively exponential growth. Um, but those accounts start adding up and it's nice to see, okay, here's a 40, here's a $50,000 account versus the $2,500, $5,000 account. And then I'm just talking premium size there, but yeah. And myself too, I'm a very entrepreneurial person. So I get not caught up, but I like to have things going on. So when I came back, I put a lot of time into getting a young professional group started in our town. And, and that was also in me learning the landscape, learning insurance. So I wasn't going out there. I also didn't really know what I was talking about. So I didn't want to go walk into some of these larger accounts and burn my bridges by then. They're like, Oh, Ryan doesn't know what he's talking about. That's a bad first impression, but Oh, Ryan's very active in the community. Ryan does this. So now they see Keating agency all over. Yeah. He must, he must know about insurance. Um, you know, that's the whole thing. You, you, I mean, you have to, and, and especially as you're growing as a producer in your career, cling to whatever works, right? Like I did, I can't go in and have a coverage discussion at a high level when I've only had my license for a month, 
but I can, you know, go to a networking event and talk about the five different things I've done over the course of my life that somebody's going to relate to or whatever. Then over time, you know, cause I've always been, I've always been of the impression, look, go get the deal done and figure out how to handle the logistics of it on the back end. Like at this point, obviously it's much different because I do know coverage. I do can, can talk technical and all of that. But if I have somebody that's on the, on the fence and I mean, that's the one thing I would tell you is Kyle knows that if all he has to do is go get it open, I will fight to the death to close it with him. If it's something where I have to be in, in, in the meetings with him to get it done or any of the other producers for that matter. I'm actually, as soon as we're done recording, I'm leaving to go freaking just destroy a piece of new business with Raphael and drag it back to the cave. And I'm going to, I'm going to point at him when I do it because he, he's been working on this thing for six months. It's time that we draw draw a line in the sand at this point. I told him, you know, I said, I just want you to know that you might get uncomfortable in this meeting today because I'm going to look at this guy and tell him it's time that you hire us or we move on. I'm not going to waste any more resources asking you to provide us information. You know, I believe that you're sincere and that you need our help. And if you're really this disorganized, I can assure you, you need our help, but we're not going to keep stream that piece. Yeah. But you know what I should, I should like put on a, a body <laughs> cam or something and go in there. Bring your smooth or smooth yeah, or whatever the hell that thing's called. Well, I've got a GoPro with the the, the head <laughs> headband attachment. I should just walk in there like there's nothing on my head. Shirt off, GoPro yeah, on your just forehead. Walk in there shirtless with the GoPro on my forehead. Like, <laughs> hey, uh, let's, let's let's go ahead and get this started. Yeah. See what happens. Be like in uh, shooting laser beams from the the sharks and Austin Powers. Yeah, there you go. Do business with something and get lasered. There you go. Well, listen, we've been going an hour and I just looked at the clock and I really do need to hit the road because I got to meet him up there to get this this deal done with him. But I wanted to thank you for coming on, man. And, um, you know, just being real, talking about everything that's going on. I'm blown away by how many different things you've done. I thought I've done a lot of different things and you are way younger than I am and have done way more. So kudos for that. I think that's going to play out a lot in your success as you continue to go on, please know that you're welcome to use me as a resource anytime you need to, even if you just need to bend my ear. Um, you know, I don't talk about it a lot, but I, I was at an agency prior to launching Florida risk with my dad. And there's a good reason why I launched Florida risk. So even if you just need somebody who's been there, done that before and decided eh, probably not the best thing for me to do to stick around. I've, I've been in those shoes. So, you know, that's a, that's a very difficult dynamic to work in. I don't know a thing about your dad, could be the greatest relationship ever. All I know is I was never going to be anything more than the 12 year old throwing the tennis ball against the garage door. And I had to go do where I could actually go somewhere and, and make something of myself. Yeah, I was hockey pucks into the garage door. There you go. Well, listen, if anybody wants to reach out to you uh, from the podcast, where do they find you? Yeah. Ryan Keating um, on LinkedIn. It might be Ryan M Keating, uh, Ryan Michael Keating on Facebook and Keating agency on all social media accounts. And he's active, people. I tell you, I would tell you to follow him. This guy, you, you'll get out of breath just watching where he goes from day to day. Well, it's, it's crazy. It's just actually, it's funny. Like the the, the shutdown has probably been perfect. Time. I was getting tired. It's tiresome. It's very tiresome. And you go hard, man. When we when my very first agency I was at, I was a little bit younger than what you are. Well, no, I was actually probably your age. And, um, you know, it was the second iteration of a very, very successful agency and all the carriers wanted to appoint them. They would fly their top brass in from all over the country. 
And I would tell you that Monday through Thursday, I was at a carrier dinner every single night because I was the new guy and they knew I would go because I was trying to network and know who these people were. And I mean, I would get to work at 7, 8 o'clock in the morning and I wouldn't get home until like 11 or 12 o'clock at night. And it was brutal. You can't keep that pace up. The good news is that stops like you. I think everybody has to dedicate a certain amount to going that hard from the beginning, but it, it does go away at some point. Yeah, well, That's why I figured eventually it'd be supplemented with, you know, raising a family and having all that. So yep. you put in the ground. Then you're, and- then you're networking around the bounce house at the birthday yeah. party. I mean, th- that works too, believe it or not. So, well, listen guys, I'm going to wrap up Ryan. Thanks so much, man. Really appreciate you coming on today. Look forward to, uh, getting this thing launched. I've got to tell you my favorite part of everything we do on the podcast is getting as creative as I can with the artwork for the thumbnail. And you have given me so much material that I may short circuit, but I can promise you that your golden retriever is going to make it. Agent, come here. (laughs) I can promise you he's going to make it. You've been listening to the Power Producers Podcast. You can follow Killing Commercial Insurance on Facebook and YouTube. And if you want to take your game to the next level, next level, check out our book, The Extra Two Minutes, and our website, killingcommercial.com. <laughs>